0: This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism, the depth of Jewish wisdom, and how to live a more empowered life. Welcome, friends, to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. It is October 15th, 2023. These are heavy times. They're dark times, are light times as well. Also, we're seeing beautiful, beautiful things that are happening within the Jewish people in Israel throughout the world, but they're also frightening times. And we're doing our best over here to keep people informed and to give people hope and perspective. And it is a great pleasure to have on the Empowered Jewish Living podcast all the way from Jerusalem. Charlotte Korchak. she's an international senior educator with Stand With Us. They do great work. Stand With Us has been an incredible partner. Just earlier today, Dvora and I were on the phone with different Stand With Us representatives about doing a Wednesday 19 gathering here. So you guys have really been uh, there for us, a tremendous partner. So thank you for everything you do. Charlotte, welcome to the Empowered Jewish Living podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I guess before we get into the, the heavy stuff, how are you doing? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are, and how you and your loved ones and friends and family might have been affected?
1: Yeah, so I'm doing, I guess I'm hanging in there. I think it's the term that I've been using a lot. I think we have a new language in Israel where a lot of us have just stopped asking each other, how are you? It's just such kind a of weird question, right? Yeah, you just kind of dive into a conversation. Um, I have to say I'm one of the lucky ones. uh, And I did, you know, quote unquote, lucky ones. I am, I think, one of the very, very few people in this country who doesn't know anyone directly who was killed. Uh, That being said, by proxy, I feel like I've lost, uh, you know, 1,300 of my family members. It's This is my third conflict, I would say, that I've lived through in Israel, serious conflict that I've lived through in Israel. I lived through the Second Intifada as a child, lost three friends in one suicide bombing when I was 14 years old. And um, I lived through the war in 2014, which wasn't a war, it was an operation. And this is the first war that I will be living through in my lifetime here in Israel. So uh, things are tough. And thank God my family's okay, my friends are not okay. My friends are all really grieving and mourning and struggling on two fronts because they're mourning their friends who have been killed, they're mourning their family members and friends who are now on the front line. And they're also watching as so much of these atrocities are being denied by the world while they're happening and being gopro by Hamas. So. It's a lot of emotion. I think so many of us are going through so many emotions, and there's a collective grief, a really a collective trauma that the Jewish people are experiencing right now that again, we have not experienced in your lifetime or in my lifetime, really not since tragically, I have to say since the Holocaust,
0: yeah. I'm guessing that your experiences at as a teen probably contributed to why you're doing the things that you do today with stand with us
1: absolutely. I first of all, I didn't understand what had happened to my friends when it happened. I was a young kid and I had never learned the history of the conflict and I didn't truly understand the context within which everything that was happening. And I, I think I joined Stand with us. One of those reasons was to be able to educate students and help young people understand what's going on in Israel. But also I faced, you know, anti-Zionism when I was on campus. I, you know, heard the classic claims of, you know, Zionism is racism and, you know, we need to, you know, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And there I was not knowing how to defend myself and I wanted to help Young people learn how to do that. And I think what's there's been so many blows this week, but I think one of them has been that I've just for so long taught, you know, compassion and empathy and understanding and trying to really see all perspectives. And I just feel like I'm being slapped in the face every single day by so many people who just absolutely not only refuse to see our perspective, but even refuse to show an ounce of remorse for the horrors that we have experienced this week, it's just been, yeah, it's, 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 it doesn't even take me back to the second intifada. I can't, this is so much bigger. We lost over a thousand Israelis in the span of four and a half years during the intifada. We lost more than that in one day. So yeah, it definitely impacted me and the rest of my life has impacted me in this moment. I will already tell you, I can feel so much how it is already impacting me and how it will change the way that I approach things in the future.
0: Yeah. And we'll get into a little bit of all of that over the course of our time together. Um, just for the listeners that don't know, can you tell us a little bit about Stand With Israel? What are you usually doing? And then what are you doing right now? Like, how have things heated up for you in the last week?
1: Stand with us. Uh, you you, made the, with us. you fall into the classic. No, it's okay. It's everyone. Stand with us. By the way, I got it right <laughs> the first two times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, so, Stand With Us is an Israel education nonprofit organization that is committed to educating about Israel and combating anti-Semitism. And we work to do that all over the world in grassroots ways, uh, working with students on all levels, from middle school, high school, to campus, as well as young professionals and. Uh, the older community, to really empower people through knowledge and give them the tools that they need to be able to have the conversation about Israel, have the conversation about Jews and anti-Semitism, and do it in an effective way using facts and also their own stories and their own better understanding of the reality and the realities of our past. So that's in with us in a nutshell. Uh, Our activities over the last You, uh, the last week, have been. I guess many of us would say we've trained for and prepared for. We've, we always know that war is possible, and we've actually had drills to prepare for warlike situations and who does what. So we 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 go in this really prepared. Our I think our front line is obviously our digital team who has. literally worked countless days and nights, Uh, they have not been sleeping to get out the most timely information. Uh, Our Instagram page has grown from 400,000 followers to 1.2 million in the span of seven days, which is shocking. I think, for me, you know, it's, it's just about getting the message out there more than anything else. And there have been Israelis, Israeli celebrities, Israeli lined up who have posted on Instagram that we are essentially the Hasbro voice for Israel, that we are the public relations voice for Israel right now out there in the world. And so it's just been an honor to be a part of this organization, to watch how everybody kind of has their roles and everyone falls into place literally like an army. And sometimes we do say we're, you know, an army of ambassadors, and it really does function that way. Everyone kind of knows what they're supposed to to be doing and we all just work together to get things out to everyone else as as quickly as we possibly can but what we're really focused on more than anything else is accuracy unlike i should say the media where many unfortunately media sources just report on things that are not verified necessarily they have to retract things we don't do that and I just want to put this out there and I'm going to say it again throughout, but I really encourage everyone to go to standwithuscom slash situation room. That is the site to visit, to see all of the minute by minute updates that we were putting up from fact sheets to explainers to videos and really everything that you need to stay up to date and to be able to counter all of the misinformation that we're experiencing out there.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay, good. So for our listeners that are just, they're overwhelmed, you know, like when you're in the middle of a war, it's hard to like start from the beginning. So let's just pretend for a moment you're in an elevator. Okay, I come in the elevator. I don't know anything. And I'm like, hey, just tell me like, hey, what's going on in Israel? What's going on with those Israeli Gazas? And again, you have like. I don't want to give you too little time, right? So let's say like it's a slow elevator, okay? And you're going to like the 12th floor and you can stop along the way, right? But again, you have to kind of give like an elevator pitch to get people up to speed. What do you say? Well, first of
1: all, this war is between Israel and Hamas, and it's been an ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas, really, since the founding of Hamas in 1987. But really, the story, I think, begins a little bit before that. So first, let's just quickly talk about Gaza. Gaza is a very small territory, about 25 miles long, six miles wide, along the eastern, the western part of Israel and along the coast of the Mediterranean. In 19, during the War of Independence, I know this is a little bit more than an elevator pitch, but it's just important, but it will be very quick. 1948, Israel is at a war. Egypt invades along with four other countries, and at the end of that war, Egypt takes control over the territory of the Gaza Strip. They control it until 1967, when Israel yet again goes to war with Egypt, and Israel takes that territory from Egypt in that war. They then make peace with Egypt in 1979, and there's an agreement that Israel is going to withdraw from the territory they took in the war, but not the Gaza Strip. The Egyptians didn't want the Gaza Strip. It was full of people who at this stage are now calling themselves Palestinians. And they, the Egyptians, don't want to take control over that territory. So it falls under Israeli military control, remains under Israeli military control. And during that window of time in 1982, we see the emergence of the first Islamic terrorist organization in Gaza, and that's going to be Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And then by 1987, we see the emergence of Hamas. Hamas is a genocidal terrorist organization, and I don't use that word lightly, in their charter, it states explicitly that their goal is the obliteration of Israel. And eventually, further down in their charter, they talk about an elimination of the Jews. This is not hard to find. these This is straight from the horse's mouth. So ever since really the founding of Hamas, when they started to engage in major terror acts against Israel starting in 1987, moving all the way up until today, Israel basically fought against them as a terror organization in Gaza, in the West Bank. And then comes the year 2000, Israel has this attempt at peace where Israel offers the Palestinians 100 percent of the Gaza Strip and 97 percent of the West Bank, known as the Camp David offer. And the Palestinians reject this offer and they launch a major war of terror called the Second Intifada, where a thousand Israelis are murdered in the span of four and a half years. And by the end of that intifada, the Israelis have decided that they are going to withdraw from the Gaza Strip, withdraw for a gesture of peace, basically saying we are willing to evacuate settlements, we are willing to remove soldiers from your t- from these territories if you are willing to start negotiating with us. Israel withdrew in August of 2005. In January of 2006, there is a parliamentary election amongst the Palestinians, and the Hamas wins that parliamentary election. No terrorist t- organization, and they refuse to recognize Israel, recognize past agreements with Israel, or stop their violence against Israel. By the and way, so that election
0: the- is legit Legit.
1: Or- legit, monitored by the Americans free, and fair worth talking about why they won. Um, so as to not really tarnish the way that people think about the Palestinians and why they would vote for an organization like Hamas, and really quick, just to go on that tangent, there's really two reasons. One is, yes, because of their militancy. They pointed at what happened and they said, look, we just spent the last four and a half years, five years, killing Israelis, right, in these horrible terror attacks throughout the Intifada. And look, Israel withdrew from Gaza. So obviously what we did worked. Vote for us. We'll continue to be violent towards Israel and use our terrorism to eventually liberate all of palestine right and then they ran on a completely opposite platform which was our rivals fatah who have been in control for the last 13 years well they've been corrupt and they basically haven't been taking care of you meanwhile in those 13 years hamas was taking care of people they were building schools and building hospitals and winning over hearts and minds a very common tactic of Start that as
0: humanitarian and then kind of shift gears once they once they get people's trust so-
1: they start with both, but for their people, they will be very humanitarian and act as a social welfare organization. Hezbollah did this in Lebanon. So they're still conducting their terror activity, but for their own citizens, they're doing good essentially. Schools, hospitals, giving them jobs, right? Things that the corrupt Fatah wasn't doing. And so people really voted for them for multiple reasons. One was for change and voting against corruption and something that they thought might be better. And the other was very much voting for them because of their terrorist activity, right? And of course, the Palestinians aren't going to call it that. They're going to call it resistance. But anyway, 2006, Hamas gets elected. Mm -hmm. Fatah, who's in control, doesn't give them power and nobody forces them to because Hamas is still a terrorist organization that refuses to do those things that I just listed. So a year and a half goes by, and Hamas is not waiting any longer. And in June of 2007, they wage basically a civil war, essentially, against Fatah in Gaza. They throw them off the roofs of buildings after shooting them in the kneecaps. They basically chase many of them out of Gaza. They literally come to the fence with Israel, and Israel opens up the border and lets them cross into the West Bank. And by the end of June of 2007, Hamas has taken over Gaza. And now the people in Gaza are living under Hamas. Now let's remember that before this even happened, a year earlier in June of 2006, Hamas already kidnapped an Israeli soldier through a terror tunnel that they had dug under an Israeli border, right? So this terror activity never stopped. It began with rocket fire even before the disengagement in 2005, and it continued with more rocket fire and tunnel digging after this disengagement. And that's eventually what prompts Israel to put up a blockade around Gaza, a blockade that won't allow Hamas to get access to weapons, weapons from where mostly from iran and we trying because on multiple occasions we have caught large ships full of weapons that were on their way from iran to be delivered to the gaza strip to hamas and so we started the blockade now the blockade early on was very harsh it was harsh i can't i don't know what else to say it was basically like here's a list of things that things that can go into gaza and if your thing is not on this list it can't go into gaza And so pasta couldn't go into Gaza and chocolate couldn't go into Gaza. And people thought it was a form of collective punishment. And really what Israel was trying to do, and maybe looking back, maybe they were right at the time, they were trying to isolate Hamas entirely, right? Completely cut them off of everything and say, you know what? You didn't want us there. We withdrew. Now you got elected. You made your bed. Now you can sleep in it. Forget us. But it didn't work. And it created more backlash. And then in 2010, there was this flotilla incident that prompted Israel to reevaluate the blockade. They did. They changed the rules. Now, here's a short list of things that can't go in. Everything else can go in. It just has to be checked by the Israelis. We loosened up the blockade. We still had operations with Hamas. In 2008, 2009, we had Operation Keselad. In 2012, we had Pillar of Defense. In 2014, we had Protective Edge. In 2021, we had Guardian of the Walls. And now, what is it? Swords of Iron? I'm sick of naming operations against Hamas in Gaza. And basically what we've had is 16 years of Hamas control, 16 years of Israel still allowing in humanitarian aid, recently allowing money to flow into Gaza to make sure that Hamas got money so that they could pay their salaries so that they wouldn't have any outbursts. And what we meant by outbursts is what we were used to in the past, which was, you know, a round of rocket fire, maybe some attempted infiltrations. What we never expected was a massacre of this proportion. And essentially, I mean, I look back at our Gaza policy and I think what we were basically trying to do was cage an animal. And they never stopped being animals. They never stopped their genocidal intentions. And we knew that. And we knew that there was no negotiating with them, right? We negotiated with them on small terms. We negotiated them for Gilad Shalit. We negotiate with them when it comes to, you know, ceasefires and things like that. But we knew there was never an end where Hamas was going to accept the existence of Israel. It goes against everything that they believe in. And so essentially it was caging an animal. And Mm -hmm. that animal got loose. And they treated us like animals yeah. and tore us apart and slaughtered us like a few animals.
0: questions though on what you just said just to understand a little bit better so you mentioned that the main purpose of the blockade was to stop them from getting weapons shipments stop them from iran get g- giving them weapons shipments they seem to have a lot of weapons so where are they coming from we hear a lot that you know hamas is funded uh, by iran do they get weapons from iran like wh- wh- where do, wh- who loads them up with this stuff
1: so talking from Iran. we're talking about money from Iran. We're talking about support from Iran. Uh, they are very creative of how they get weapons. But also you should know that they have weapons manufacturing in Gaza. So they recently, in the last couple of years, put out this video that they were Boasting about the fact that they had dug up all of these pipes that had been laid in Gaza. We're talking about the infrastructure, we're talking about the sewage system, the water system, that they literally, you can see this video on Hamas propaganda pages of them digging up the water pipes and then them in some makeshift factory making Qassam rockets. So a lot of those short range missiles that you are seeing are produced by Hamas in Gaza using a technique that they basically invented in Gaza and they've perfected in Gaza. And those are the short-range missiles. Um, some of the longer-range missiles, um, one would argue, probably come from Iran. The challenge is really understanding how they got them. Uh, I, You know, I heard something crazy and then I saw actually a video of it, which blew my mind, which was in, in the same video, actually, that I'm talking about, where Hamas actually was under the water retrieving something that had been left for them In the Mediterranean, and I had heard this years ago by someone, and I rolled my eyes, thinking, "Are you serious? Like you're trying to tell me that somebody like on some boat offshore, like in international waters, like goes underwater and buries something, and then like Hamas comes and retrieves it?" And the answer is yes, that's exactly what happens. So this is whatever means they could use, they did whether it was smaller smuggling tunnels from Egypt that we don't know about. I mean, they found a way. I know that they produced their own rockets, but the guns, the ammunition, uh, these are all these question marks that our intelligence Mm -hmm. services are going to have to answer for us. that
0: out. Um, The uh, Obviously, people were surprised this week to see that Gaza is dependent on Israel for electricity and water. And the question is, is that purely because Hamas doesn't take care of them? Or does Israel do things to stop Gaza from becoming its own independent, uh, self-reliant entity?
1: not the latter. Israel does not stop them from becoming their own entity. Uh, there needs to be a will right within the territory to want to become independent and become your own entity. And we definitely have not seen that will from Hamas. We don't control all of the water and electricity to Gaza. Uh, in fact, Gaza has its own power plant and they provide their own electricity to, their, to some of their people. We supplement that that electricity from a power plant that we have here in Israel. Uh, that being said, that their power plant in Gaza is obviously run by fuel, and we do control, obviously, what goes in and out of Gaza, and therefore we control the fuel that goes into Gaza. So if we cut off fuel, that means that eventually we can cut off their power plant and therefore cut off electricity. In terms of water, Israel only provides about 10% of the water to Gaza. Um, there's a great article on the Jerusalem Post, if anyone is interested, um, and maybe I can send it to you and you could put it in the show notes, Uh, that kind of goes over over how much Israel controls water, electricity, and other things into Gaza, and is it violating international law currently for Israel to be doing what they're doing, shutting down access to those things. Um, But yeah, we don't provide all the electricity, about 10 um, percent—excuse me, water. Uh, Water in Gaza was actually—from within Gaza, there was an aquifer. The problem, though, is now more and more they have illegally drilled into the—basically, not illegal, but un-un-approved uh, drilling has taken place into the grounds groundwater system that has caused overpumping. That is also by also by civilians caused... or by. By civilians and by Hamas. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, a, there's like a lawlessness. There isn't necessarily a system in place that's monitoring this. The same thing happens in the West Bank. We just didn't have a poisoning of the system. But there, there's been contamination as a result of these unchecked wells. So you have contamination of the groundwater, both from sewage, which is obviously really, really bad. We're talking about, you know, uh, diseases that can come from this, from these, these contaminations, and then seawater contamination, which essentially just deems the water not drinkable. But what essentially has also now been done is because of that, they now also have a desalinization plant in Gaza that desalinates their water, and then they can get fresh water. Going back to the fuel issue, all of these things are obviously run by electricity, and so that is all going to be determined on how much fuel is allowed into the Gaza Strip. And right now, the main reason that Israel is shutting off all of those things in Gaza is essentially under siege. And that is the right terminology to use in this context. The reason that Israel is doing that is because they are trying to starve Hamas out of that of that electricity. And they're not doing this to inflict harm on the innocent civilians in Gaza. In fact, Israel made it very sooner. We shut off the the, the, the flow of electricity which is essentially then affecting all those other things. And we've cut off any flow of humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip until you release our hostages. This isn't mean indefinitely. This isn't, we're trying to cause you pain. This is simple. You kidnapped 150 of our citizens, possibly up to 200 of our citizens. We want them back. They're hostages. You're not allowing the Red Cross to see them. These are not prisoners of war. And so until you release our hostages, we are not going to provide you with the basic needs. And that and that is legitimate until a certain point. And then it might become problematic international, according to international law.
0: And just by the way, uh, what I've seen just right before this podcast is I think that now they've turned it on for the south because they're trying to incentivize um, northern Gazans to go south so they can go into the north.
1: So I haven't seen that report, but that is very likely. And that's, that's again, another another big topic that we can discuss, which is this evacuation that is now happening, where Gaza, the northern Gaza Strip has been evacuated, told telling everyone to go south of Wadi Gaza. And, I mean, they've even dropped flyers with maps on them, very clearly showing the delineating line of where, how far south you have to get to be in a safe zone. And the enemy is, you know, people are telling us you're killing innocent civilians. You're targeting innocent civilians, while Israel is telling all of the innocent civilians to get out of the way. It's it's such mixed messaging. So, while while that's happening, Hamas is telling people to stay, and they're not just telling people to stay. Now they're forcing people to stay. There there is now a report you can you can hear it on the Stand With Us page, uh, a, a, a recording of IDF speaking to somebody in in northern Gaza saying. The Hamas took our car keys. They are, they're not letting us go south. You we have reports of them blocking evacuation routes, two evacuation routes that Israel guarantee would be safe routes without any bombings or anything else while going down those roads. And those roads, one of those roads at least, is being blocked by Hamas. So, I mean, I think it should be very, very clear who in this case targets innocent civilians and who is okay with innocent civilians dying. And that's obviously not Israel. Given Has, what's happened
0: Have, the, last have the Gazans, have they reelected Hamas over and over again since 2006? Have they had more elections? It's
1: tragedy when you think about it. Because, like you know, a lot of people sometimes will say to me, well, you know, Charlotte, they voted for these guys. And so they made their bed and now they have to sleep in it. And my response is one that's kind of tragic. You know, the last election was in 2006, the one that I told you about. We haven't had an election since. Now, around th- at that time, there was around 1 million, 1.2 million people living in Gaza. Today, there are 2.2 million people in Gaza, which means that at least a million people living in Gaza today did not vote for Hamas. They did not choose this future for themselves, this reality for themselves. And then there are innocent children who are growing up in this environment, who are being brainwashed from birth, to hate Israel, hate the Jews. And... Look, I, I hate to to say this, and it, it's something that I know is going to be very hard for some people to grapple with right now, but the comparisons that I am now seeing to the, not the Holocaust that we all think about, which is the Holocaust of gas chambers and death camps, but the Holocaust that came before that Holocaust, which was the Holocaust of bullets, which we're talking about more and more now, which was the Holocaust of, you know where they stood around, you know, a valley and and shot the Jews down below, very similar to what just happened at the music festival where Hamas stood on these hillsides and just picked off Jews. But why I brought this up was because it goes back to before that. It goes back to 1925, I believe, when Hitler created the Nazi youth. It was an indoctrination that took a generation. It didn't just happen. This this doesn't just happen. Monsters like this are not just born, they're created. And Hamas made this happen by taking these innocent children, these million people who have now been born and raised into their control. And they've brainwashed them to believe that we are not human. It's the only that you can, I don't know how graphic we wanna go on this, but you can edit this as you see fit. If if you can go to the extent of burning a baby alive or decapitating a, a baby or kidnapping and raping children, if you can go to that extent, there's no way that we Jews are human in your eyes. And the type of atrocities that we are seeing, we have not seen since the Holocaust, the way that they targeted women and children. Because women are our power. Women are our womb. Women are the ones who are going to continue to produce Jewish children. They go after the women in particular. Right? This is, it's, I, we have a Holocaust education center at Stand With Us. And I spoke to one of our educators and the list of comparisons that he sent me shook me to my core last night. And so, no, Hamas has not been reelected. But Hamas didn't have to be reelected because they've spent the last sixteen years indoctrinating every single person that has been born under their control. And we have a a a, a generation of a brainwashed people. And that was the Nazis. That was Hitler's executioners, right? That was the ordinary men that Browning talked about, and I say "quote unquote," right? Who became the monsters who were the Einsatzgruppen who went village to village and rounded up Jews and shot and killed them. So we have to know what we're dealing with. And I, 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 I want to say something, and I, I've said it a lot in my head, and I, I've been trying to work it out, but you know, if Israel had existed in 1940. When there were no gas chambers yet, there was no Vansi conference yet, right? There was no decision yet to exterminate the Jews. But Hitler in 1939 had already made a speech where he spoke about the extermination of the Jews. So we have a Hamas that already talks about the extermination of the Jews, right? It was written into their charter in 1987, and they never stopped saying it. And now they sent them terror squads in to do the most horrific things to Jews, it was like the and going village to village doing the most horrific thing to Jews in 1940. And if Israel had existed then, we would go and do what we want to do in Germany to get rid of the Nazis. And innocent Germans would probably have died. But hindsight's 2020, And now I look back and I would say, yep, and it's, it's the price that somebody has to pay. And I don't like it. And it's painful to even consider it. But... When somebody says they want to wipe you out, we Jews we have to take them seriously. And so, to me, this is what we would have done in 1940, had there been an Israel. Yeah. And now we have to do what we have to do. And you know what? I'm I'm just I'm not gonna apologize anymore. I'm not gonna apologize for finally being able to defend myself. I'm not gonna apologize for finally telling the world that Jewish blood is not cheap that you can see all you want in the streets of London and New York. But we are going to show you that you're not going to get away with it this time. We see the signs. And so every Jew has to take that in and explain this to people because the signs are there. The denial, that's part of it. They denied the Holocaust after the Holocaust. Here, they're denying it as it's happening, which is another core feature of genocide. So I, I, I hate to go so deep, but... This is this is so much bigger than anything we've ever seen again in our lifetimes. And Ah. I'm a historian and I can say that with 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 pure confidence that that is the case for the Jewish people today.
0: Yeah, I want to unpack with you just in a moment exactly who these who who these deniers are, where they're coming from, like, you know, where where, where they're coming out of. But just before that, a couple of things that I'm that I I'm still trying to wrap my head around. You had mentioned earlier the Red Cross. You said that um, Hamas is not allowing the Red Cross to come in. Uh, I saw a video maybe saying the Red Cross themselves might, have, might might be backstabbing the Israeli people. I'm not really sure, but just can you just explain to me? what I, I The way I understand it from a very limited understanding is there are, even if you're Hamas, right, officially there are some rules that you're supposed to be playing by. Uh, I would imagine that Hamas broke all of those rules already. The Red Cross is some sort of international agency agency that's meant to you know be like uh, some sort of referee and make sure that everyone is being treated nicely in the middle of a horrific war and and if they're not doing their job like then what what what, what's at stake over here if there's a referee who's not able to referee like what happens
1: um you know is really smart to a certain extent in how they play this right so you have Hamas and you have the political wing of Hamas, and then you have the military wing of Hamas. And around the world, Hamas likes to present themselves as nowhere different, right? There's the political side, and then there's the military side. And you don't have to be for the military side. You can just be for the political side. But then when it comes to actually being accountable to international law, they're just a terrorist organization, and they function like a terrorist organization. Because what's punishment? What's the world going to do to them? I've said this before, right? So they kidnapped Gilad Shalit in 2005. They kidnapped Gilad Shalit. And excuse me, 2006, June 25th, 2006, they kidnapped Gilad Shalit. And they held for over five years. And the entire time said, This is a soldier. This is a prisoner of war. You, according to international law, have to allow us access to him to just confirm that he is okay and he's being treated properly. And they said, No, listen for the way. Them. were there any international consequences was there any condemnation was you know was what did the UN Human Rights Council ever pass anything condemning Hamas no and the thing and here's the thing it's like they're 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 yeah Palestine is not yet a full country in the UN right therefore they're not discussed like a like a country in the UN and so there's they're given this kind of pass. whereas Israel which has been a country in the UN since pretty much the founding of the UN we're held to the same international standard as any other Western liberal democracy. And I stress that because, let's be honest, anyone who is not a Western liberal democracy does whatever they want to do, right? Iran, Syria, North Korea, they're not—they don't care about international law. And there's—yeah, and maybe sanctions, but nothing really that concrete ever comes down upon these entities that— that makes them think twice about doing so sanctions
0: that that, that's sort of that's supposed to be the thing that hangs over your head but it's not really enforced
1: Sanctions, international you know isolation i mean north korea is internationally isolated things like that but again they still function they figured out a way to be pretty much self-sufficient right Iran, if you have a resource, then people won't, you know, the whole world won't boycott you and then you can continue to function. So it just there's that's the problem with international law when it comes down to it it, is that there's no enforce. There's no enforceability. And therefore, if there's no enforceability, then there's no accountability. I mean, if you really cross the line, right, if you commit, you know, a crime against humanity, you may you might be taken to the Hague. Right and brought up on on in a war crimes tribunal, right in the International Criminal Court. What was the, but
0: again, this, uh, uh, in Syria, what was his name in Syria? Assad in Syria. Bashar
1: al-Assad. He's still president of Syria. So
0: <laughs> nothing happened after all that. He gassed no, his own people, and
1: as a result of him, five hundred thousand, half a million Syrians were killed, over a million displaced, and here he is sitting, chilling, pretty as, and he was just recently welcomed back into the Arab League. I mean, come on. Got it. This is the problem with international law. The reality is, is and and, I mean, to a certain extent, Jews said it. You know, like we would hunt the Nazis and whatever happened to these people. You know, Uh, it comes the Munich massacre, right? And. You have uh, the terrorists who actually committed it, right, who eventually were released from by, in Ger- by the Germans because a Lufthansa plane was hijacked, I'm pretty sure. And in the deal, they released the prisoners. And then essentially they made a deal with the PLO saying, don't hijack any more Lufthansa planes and we won't hunt any of uh, the, 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 the Munich massacres, the, the, the people responsible for the Munich massacre. I mean, there's zero accountability at this point. Hamas has nothing to be afraid of. Oh, some bad press. And even now, now they're looking at the press, going, "Hell, we just GoPro'd ourselves, massacring people, and nobody cares." And people are are celebrating it in the streets. So, I mean, why why would there's no deterrent when it comes from the international community? The only deterrent that they would understand is a deterrent of force, which is what Israel's about to create. But here's the thing: Israel's not talking about a deterrent anymore. Israel is talking about fully dismantling Hamas.
0: Okay, that's a great segue. That is a great segue to just uh, help, help me understand this. First of all, I'm just trying to take a step back. Why did this happen? I want to understand Hamas. I want to understand Israel. Why did this happen now? Was it just like it could have happened anytime? They just happened to have been ready now, so they went for it. Or was there something happening? Does this have to do with Saudi Arabia? Did this have to do with 50 years? We got like, why did this specifically happen now? And uh, my next question is like, obviously, um, it seems like they thought this one through pretty well, right? So it's, I'm guessing they're like, okay, we're going to go and they were probably more successful than they even thought that they w- w- would be. I mean, they were like massively successful. But I I mean, they they expected that there would be a response. So now, get into the brains of Hamas, like, what for them wh- where did they think that this was going to go and what's considered a win for them at this point what's considered a loss and when israel's talking about we're going to win the war we're going to win the war like what like what what does that even mean
1: first of all why did it happen there is a number of reasons i think one the the lack of unity within israel i don't think anyone could ignore the fact that this last year has been probably the hardest political years that Israel's had. We've had weekly protests. There's been a lot of animosity amongst Israelis. And we are, you know, this is a Jewish podcast and every so often I put on my seminary hat as opposed to my historian hat. Um, and as a Jewish as a jewish intellectual you know i look back historically at the two times that our temple was destroyed and the last time it was destroyed it was destroyed because jews were because of sinat because jews were hating other jews and and because and of the haman right strife. when haman
0: tried to destroy he said that and the H- jewish people are scattered and they're disunited yes,
1: yes. and okay. so i think that's and that's a very apt i think example given that our real adversary here is obviously Iran who is the puppet master but what was game.
0: Hamas thinking that was Hamas like oh now we have like Absolutely. they're disunited let's end I- that i mean
1: Look, I can't get into the head, but I i mean, yes, if I see that my opponent is weaker and they're getting weaker, uh, that's, me, that's the chance to take my opportunity. Now, at the same time, I think it seems like they've been planning this for a while, possibly even over a year now. And so they might have just continued to build up to say, see like a really opportune time. And then I think the real blow, which is why Iran probably would be the one to call in and say, let's maybe do this, is the Saudi deal. Uh, It was it was gearing up. It was getting real hot. The conversation about normalization with the Saudis. And as soon as Israel normalizes relations with the Saudis and makes a defense deal with the Americans that pushes Iran down on that on that hierarchy of where they want to be in the Middle East. And so there were a lot of factors at play. This is not something that Hamas would never wouldn't want to do any day of of any year. Do you know what I mean? But they picked a time when we would be the weakest. And they picked a time when we would be the most distracted. I mean, come on, any Jew knows 6:30 a.m. after Simcha Torah, right? You got a bunch of hungover people. I'm sorry, us Jews, this is how we're supposed to celebrate our holiday. You know, you got a bunch of people hungover, confused. You have a bunch of kids at a at a at a festival, which they for sure had to know about because it was obviously targeted. I mean, it seemed very planned in terms of yeah. how they blocked yeah. people into that festival. And so, yeah, that's, I think the main, the those are, I think the main reasons that that day was chosen. It was like, I mean, the, it was like
0: the perfect storm, the perfect storm for everything to go storm. wrong.
1: Everything, the people would be sent home for the holiday or, you know, the bases would be less, ma- less uh, manned, all of those factors. And then, I mean, I don't know, maybe this is just my historian brain working, but the fact that it was, you know, 50 years and a day to the anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, I think, I, I don't know. I-, I know that the the Arabs like to be, sim- the Palestinians like to be symbolic in those ways sometimes. And so maybe that also had something to do with it. Yeah. Uh, where are we going from here? again like i said uh every person that i have spoken to and this is shocking but i have to tell you every israeli that i have spoken to from right to left to center essentially is on the same page that there is one goal and there is one there is there there's only one success for this for this war and that is the complete dismantling of hamas there's, there's no if ands, or buts about it. And even people who used to work for humanitarian organizations or were in the army and did work in the humanitarian corps, people who were the leftiest leftists that you could imagine, okay? And I'm, I'm not necessarily not putting myself in that category, and, and I'm not saying that as an but lefty of leftists would be the most peacenik people. They're even saying, cut them off, do what we have to do.
0: That that, and, that means that means kill them, or that means that they come out with little white flags saying we're, no. we're we're out of business.
1: Kill them, neutralize them, arrest them. We don't care. Dismantle them. Meaning they do not have power in Gaza anymore. Okay. Meaning every one of their terrorists, their leadership is gone. Meaning all of their infrastructure is wiped out. Why are we evacuating the whole northern Gaza strip? The entire north. We've never done this before. Why a full evacuation? To get rid of every single Hamas installation and in Northern take
0: Gaza. Gaza back under Israeli power, or hold new elections, or give I, them I, I, to I, Egypt, I don't know. I don't
1: know. I okay. if I think if I had to, I don't like to guess. I'm not a this is my one thing. I I'm not so much an analyst an analyst. I'm much more a historian, and I can tell you what's going on right now. Okay, if I had to make a, a guess. I think the last thing that anyone really wants is for us to reoccupy Gaza. Reoccupying Gaza just looks like another West Bank, an ongoing, continued reality that with, with where we just have insurgency and it never ends. I think Egypt wants nothing to do with Gaza, so that's not an option. And I think the only option would be to turn Gaza over to the defunct Palestinian Authority, which maybe if we cleared out all the terrorists, maybe that would work, but I—, I I think that's really the only option that Israel has unless they they do plan on staying, uh, which I don't think anyone wants. I don't besides think anyone wants. For, so,
0: besides for world pressure at this point, does Hamas have any other weapons left to stop Israel from doing that?
1: Our hostages. Okay. But I don't think that's going to I don't think that's going to stop us. Right. Again, every Israeli that I've spoken to says go in and get them. But we have to like, do we so like
0: to. best case scenario for Hamas after they did this when they're like okay we're gonna we're gonna commit the worst massacre ever and then on day two like like best case scenario for them what's gonna happen what's considered success for them
1: This sort of a real miscalculation I have to say on Hamas's part I I believe Hamas. Look, Hamas didn't think they thought they were going to be this successful and more. Right? Okay. If you look at the plans that we have now found on on terrorist bodies, like the the orders that they received, you should really look this up. It's it's pretty remarkable. And in the it, size, we we found terrorists who had who had gear to really give them time to hunker down. They thought they were going to really reoccupy these areas of the south. That's what they thought was oh, going wow. to happen. They thought, okay. yeah. That's that. That was the ultimate plan. And then they were going to keep working their way in. That was Can, can you explain that?
0: Can you explain to me? They did not anticipate that Israel within six to 10 hours is going to come down with their whole with, with, with like half their army and wipe them back to Gaza?
1: I mean, I, I think they thought it was going to be a lot longer because, again, based on the equipment that they had to hunker down, and and what they were saying it seemed like they really thought that they were going to reoccupy parts. that's fascinating so 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 it was actually parts. a real
0: success the fact that israel was able to within 24 hours reclaim all of those i, I didn't even realize that i thought that was like a no-brainer like of course it's
1: only, it's only, i mean they um, they overestimated us and they estimated us actually calculated us really perfectly with the initial strike, but they very much underestimated our, our response. They thought we're going to take out their defenses and we're going to keep working our way. That's why they went to those military bases first. The only reason when people say they didn't target civilians, first of all, that's a joke, like just an absolute joke and a despicable thing that you could even say when, you know, they're setting houses on fire with families burning alive inside, like just get your, like move on. But they, they targeted those in those, those first few bases because they essentially knew that that was the defense, that was the the line of defense in the South. And they said, we got to get rid of these soldiers, the, this line of defense, and then we can keep working our way north. And so this was an operational success and failure for them. But I don't think they... So did they calculate any further? No. Did they fully underestimate us? Yes. I think that they even thought, even if we do this, whatever, we'll go back into Gaza. You know, Israel will eventually cave. It'll be like another five weeks. They'll bomb us, just like they did in 2014. And then we'll just rebuild and, like, we'll move on. I think they genuinely underestimated how unprecedented this attack was and how much this is... (sighs) bringing up in the Jewish people reminders of the horrors of our past and reminding us that when those horrors happened in our past, we didn't have the ability to defend ourselves, but now we do. And that's where I think they really, really miscalculated. And we are not rushing into this. We are not. It's been a week and everyone's saying, where's the response? I I don't need a rush. We have a calculated mission to do right now. We have a very important mission. And it's going to be a, a long and arduous one. And it's going to be really, really, really scary and probably really, really deadly. Yeah. And we are preparing. And it feels to me like we are, we're preparing in a very responsible way before we send our boys in to go do this. And and it's going to be long and hard. And I think I want to say to everyone listening, it's it's going to get really ugly. Mm. And we are going to have to stomach a lot. And we're going to have to stomach a lot of of us possibly losing some of our soldiers. I just can't see a scenario where that doesn't happen. And we are also at the same time are going to have to face some of the most vile hatred that we've ever seen online. And everyone will have forgotten the stories that every one of us will never forget from this week that we just had.
0: Yeah. After Shabbat, also, like I turned on my computer, I was like, my hands were shaking. I'm like, what am I going to see? What am I going to see? And then like, I opened it up. I'm like, what? They're, they still didn't go in? Like, what are, they, what are they waiting for? But you're right. I guess this is much slower and much more calculated than I think people expected, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Have to remember, this isn't just one front. We are already a second front is already open. Please is now already taking credit for rockets that they've launched from the north, uh from Lebanon. We've had rockets come in from Syria. Uh, Iran put out a warning today, Sunday, October 15th. A warning saying, uh, you know, if you continue what you're doing in Gaza, we we might have to get in there, like we might have to interfere, essentially a threat to Israel. Now, the comfort is knowing, one, that I think Israel is is very much equipped for that kind of war, and we've been preparing for a two-front war for many years now. And I also think that this is bigger—if Iran gets involved, it's bigger than just Israel, and the Americans have already put two of their warships in the Mediterranean to show that that support, and have already made that threat to Iran, right? I mean, Biden said it in his speech. If anyone is thinking about taking advantage of this, don't. That's exactly what he said, and that was a message to Iran— don't get involved. And so we have to remember, this could be a two-front war. It could be a long war. And we need to make sure that we are well-equipped now before we go in and realize that we're not. And so we're trying to equip ourselves. We're trying to make sure that our all of our reservists, not just we had enough equipment for our main guys going in, the, the non-reserve duty men. But for all of the reserves that have now been called up and many who came even not being called up, we have... We had to make sure that they had their bulletproof vests and we had to make sure they had the ceramic plates for those bulletproof vests, which are way, way, way more effective in saving people's lives. We got them new helmets. Um, A new helmet actually just saved the life of a Maglan soldier just in this last week of fighting uh, who got hit directly in the head. Uh, But this new helmet that they received from donations from people abroad saved his life. So these we're trying to make sure that we have the best the best equipment so that we have as minimal casualties as possible. We want to get as much information as possible. We want to bomb as much of northern Gaza from the air. We want to get as much of that infrastructure out of the way before we go in right so and and what we were also waiting for was a, a proper cabinet, right an emergency cabinet that was focused on this war that the that the country could trust is going to make the right decisions. And I have to tell you, as an Israeli citizen, I am incredibly comfortable with the war panel that was that was set up, the War Committee. It's Bibi Netanyahu. It's Yov Galant, the defense minister. It's Benny Gantz, who is the head of, of the opposition party, but also was a former chief of staff of the army, alongside two advisors, one who is also a former chief of staff of the army, Chief of Staff of the R.P. Gaby Eisenkot and Ron Dermer, who is basically BB's right hand man, and really also understands the foreign media and understands kind of how things are perceived and how things will play as, to a certain extent, but also how they should be presented. Um, and, yeah, we almost a he, good Ron
0: Dermer CNN interview. Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. There you go. All the Americans know he used to be the ambassador. Yeah. Um, And I think Lieberman just joined the Emergency Coalition as well, and so we're seeing unity and and we're seeing. Uh, I, I really feel I, I, as eager as I think some of us were and some of us didn't, just wanted to do it already. I think there is a calm that I'm feeling and feeling like we are going about this in a in a responsible way, and we're not jumping the gun and we're not acting out. And this isn't about revenge or retaliation. This is really about how do we get rid of this threat altogether. That's what that's what our goal is. This is and I want to make something very clear. And to the audience, this is something we have to keep making clear to people. This is not a war against the Palestinians or against Gaza. This is a war against Hamas. Period. And we have to always, when you're having conversations with people, when you're, you know, arguing with people online, you constantly make that separation. We are not against Palestinians. We are against Hamas. Hamas, who is doing nothing for Palestinian liberation, just like they're doing nothing to help the peace process, right? We want to get rid of Hamas so the Palestinians can further their their, their cries for liberation, but legitimately, not through violence, not through terror, not through the most horrific atrocities that we've seen since literally the Holocaust. Holocaust. I mean, we we have to get our heads around who we are dealing with. So just remember to make that distinction. Hamas and the Palestinians, they are two different groups. Yes, yes some Palestinians support Hamas. And far so as I'm concerned, they're not innocent in all of this. Israel blew up a pizza shop in Gaza, that was that was that was showing Palestinian propaganda. They put up one oh horrible. They put up that that photo of the horrible woman with dementia, the 85 year old woman who was given the Hamas gun and told to give a peace sign to the camera. Photo that probably many of your listeners have seen. And he put it up. He made like a, an advertisement for his pizza shop using this Hamas propaganda, and we blew up his pizza shop. Like we're so again, what's innocent and what's not? But if you're supporting Hamas, you're in that category as well. And Hamas, that's our target. And that's what we need to be focused on. And that's what Israel's trying to do. And I'm I'm really proud. I'm up until now, I'm really proud of the response and the way that we've united around this cause, this war effort. And um we're we're gonna I, I'm, we're gonna finish the job. I'm yeah. very confident that we're gonna finish the job this time.
0: Let's let's speak a little bit in this the the time that we have left, just about you know, world response, world perception. Um, obviously there's already videos of, you know, London and, you know, protests and rallies pro-Hamas, Palestine, I don't even know, whatever these things are happening in London and you're seeing it in LA and you're seeing it on college campuses and you're seeing it in New York. So I, I would like to understand who are these people? Who are them? Are they are they just, you know, are, are, are they people of... Arab or even Palestinian ancestry that are here? Are they just American people? Are they just anti-Semites? Are they good Americans that are misinformed? Like, can you explain who are the people that march in such a rally?
1: The answer is yes. To what you just said. It's all of them. It depends on where you are. Uh, But yeah, everything you just said, there are There are people of Arab background. There's people of Muslim background. There's people of Palestinian background. There are average Americans who have just been completely wildly misinformed. There are anti-Semites. And there are there go to the progressive left and you have you know people who are very convinced that their movements are intertwined with the Palestinian movement uh you have you have a lot of black voices in america that are speaking out uh in favor of this uh one of the more horrible videos i saw was a man a black man in in new york at a rally basically praising this and he woke up to the news and he was so excited it was one of the more blood curdling uh, messages that I heard. Uh literally somebody just celebrating in such an enthusiastic way the murder of Jews. And so literally it could be anybody. Um we have Jews doing this, right? I just saw a video of a rally of Jews uh who were who were, you know, crying over what was happening in Gaza. And I very much understand holding sympathy for the people in Gaza. But if you, in that same breath, cannot in any way, shape or form, express any kind of sympathy for the innocent Israelis who were just murdered and the woes who are still being kept hostage and without saying the word, but after it, oh yeah, yeah, that was really sad, but the people in Gaza, with all due respect, the people in Gaza have never, ever faced the kind of atrocities that we just faced so it's everybody i don't want i don't want to
0: minimize it in any way because i understand that it's serious but in the the, but people are taking it seriously to the point of hysteria so i i just want to pose the question the other way and that is like how much do you have to freak out over this because i understand that close to 80 percent of americans are supportive of biden of the of 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 his response and when i see videos of these rallies it was like Who would have guessed that this would happen on the streets of L.A.? And then, like, I'm looking at the people marching, you know, in in the in the in, in, in these parades. And I'm like, I'm not like these are not the people that I would have expected otherwise from. Like, this is the type of person that, like, you wouldn't use as your car mechanic. You know, lots of the people that you're seeing.
1: It's very fair. And like the last thing I want to do is cause hysteria, but at the same time, I also don't want to minimize what's actually going on. So of course, these people are a minority, right? But when you say it's coming from people that I would expect, right? Like the average, you know, stupid, random Joe, whatever. Yes, but then you have this case of a Stanford professor. This is the elites of our society, right? A professor at Stanford who has a class the day after this whole thing happened. I believe it was Monday. And she says to all the Jews in the class, anyone who is Jewish or Israeli, I want you to get up and I want you to go stand in the corner. And she made them all stand in the corner. And then she said, now ask how many Jews died in the Holocaust. And one of the Jews said, how many Jews died in the Holocaust? And one of the other students who was sitting in the class said 6 million. And the professor goes, the colonists have killed way more than 6 million. You all can sit down now. That's not Mm -hmm. your average guy Mm -hmm. pumping your gas in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's a professor at a major university in America. This is 34 organizations at Harvard University who signed on to a letter before Israel even responded in Gaza. So they can't even claim that they were doing this because of Israel's disproportionate, quote-unquote, response, which is a whole other topic that we should discuss is proportionality and what that means, because as far as I'm concerned, proportionality would be, be sending in a bunch of people to go rape and brutalize innocent people, which I don't know any Israeli soldier who's going to volunteer to do that because, right, we don't do those things. And so the concept of proportionality. But we are dealing with, so we have these 34 organizations from Harvard who sign on to a letter basically saying that they fully support Hamas and in no way condemn what just happened and put all of the blame on Israel. We had the head of the NYU Student Bar Association say the same thing. Yes. Then you have the hopeful things. And don't, again, I don't want to spread it. This isn't about hysteria. It's about understanding the problem at hand. And the problem at hand is a serious one. It's not one to be minimized, OK? That doesn't mean that every average person walking around is anti-Semitic and is out to get you. No. I mean, look at what happened. They called for a day of rage on Friday. And thank God, nothing around the world. We had one incident in China, right, with a with a Jewish diplomat. But other than that, nothing. And so thank God there are good people of conscience. Listen to Joe Biden's speech last week. That is, he didn't have to go into those details. He didn't have to be as emotional as he was. It was one of the best features of his presidency. He came out. He So I, I keep those stories. You know, one of the people who signed on to that letter at Harvard, it wasn't even students. It was organizations. And Harvard and excuse me, law firms that pull from Harvard literally said, I want to know which students are in those organizations because they are not getting jobs at our firms. The student of the Bar Association, the head of the Bar Association at NYU, she was a summer intern and she had a job offer at that firm and they rescinded her job offer after this happened so it is it's scary because it's that's that's the next generation and so it's good that the older generation is saying whoa 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 slow your roll like the these people were just massacred and you're defending like where where what's going on here but that's the younger generation and they're growing up and if we don't take notice of this now they're going to grow up and be the next leaders and then what Because we have America's support today, and that's amazing. And and I don't want to say it's necessary, but it is very very helpful and comforting, right? And I genuinely believe that if during the Holocaust there wasn't Israel, first of all, there wouldn't have been a Holocaust. If there was Israel, if somebody to lead the charge to protect the Jewish people, people would have joined in the effort. I mean, countries themselves did it, Denmark, Albania, they protected their Jews. If there had been somebody leading the effort, there would be somebody following and today is somebody who's going to lead that charge. And countries of conscience will follow. Leaders will follow. They're not going to forget the images. The media, the the people who are consuming just horrible BS propaganda on, on social media platforms, they're going to be swayed. They're going to see the images coming out of Gaza there, right? They, they, You know, Hamas cuts off babies' heads. We cut off electricity, and somehow I'm still the bad guy. Right. That's what we're dealing with when it comes to the propaganda war. So you're absolutely right. No hysteria. The good people of conscience are still the majority out there. And they saw what happened and they are expressing their sorrow and they they're struggling because when they express something that's positive towards their Jewish friends, they get attacked and they don't know how to deal with it, just like Jews don't know how to deal with it. And so don't walk around thinking everyone's out to get you. But if you're talking to somebody who literally is incapable of expressing an iota of compassion or sympathy for what the Jews just went through, I don't think they're worth your time. If somebody comes to you and says, wow, I'm really sorry. It's so horrible to see the images coming out of Israel. It's really just just really bad. You know, But people are saying, X, Y, Z, can you explain it to me? That I think is worth your time. And it is worth diving into those things to get people who, like you said, are in the middle, who don't really know, who are not anti-Semitic, and they're not against us. They just don't understand to be able to help them understand, especially now, because this is going to go on for a while. And we yes. really encourage everyone, if you want to understand more, Stand With Us is there. We're here as an organization. Um, you know, I do a crash course that I might I might really push right now because I think it might be really helpful to a lot of people. And we have videos and we have explainers. And we're going to we put so all that in the offer. show notes
0: to give people all those links. Let, yeah. let me ask you this, Shala. I don't even know if their next question is appropriate. And I've, I've, my listeners should forgive me, um, but I just have to ask and you can just answer it ha- how you'd like. Um, uh, lots of Jews in America. Um, American Jews, lots of people who might listen and people that are part of our community, um are are liberal, progressive, and will very quickly get behind, you know, progressive causes and are very, very vocal about it. um, you know, politically, again, this is not a political pie. I've never said anything political, but there are usually political candidates who who uh, oh, at, at least are branded or marketed as being a little bit more pro-Israel, a little bit led, no one's end. Every, every president, every candidate will say, I stand behind Israel. But yet certain ones are perceived as being more, and some are perceived as being less. And often progressive, more liberal Jews will get behind the one who's on the less, you know, at least. So should liberal progressive Jews, um, leftly, sh- should, I don't want to say they, I don't want to say we, right? Should people be reconsidering the uh, movements that they get behind or the overall attitude towards politics or causes in general?
1: No, no, I think what determines our politics is our values, right? And so you might be a conservative or you might be liberal. And and when you say people say, you know, I might vote for someone who's less Zionist, because of something else. It's actually not how they would think about it. A liberal Jew wouldn't vote for Biden saying, well, I know that he's not as pro-Israel, um, but I'm going to vote for him because of all the other things that I support, right? That's actually not how they're going to perceive it. They're going to say he's actually very Zionist. And I I don't like to use pro-Israel anymore. I really want to take back the word Zionist. So when we say Zionism, we're talking about people who believe in a Jewish state in the land of Israel. And Joe Biden's a Zionist. In fact, he called himself one. Um, but he's a left-wing Zionist, right? And so left-wing Zionists who are liberal Zionists, they they align with him and they think he's actually a Zionist in their own way that they're, that they're Zionist. And they might actually say that somebody, a candidate maybe like Donald Trump or other conservatives were Zionist as well, but not their style of Zionism. It's just right-wing Zionism. So it's really a perspective thing, right? It's a matter of where you sit. And so, no, I, I I think just the opposite. We should never be abandoning the spaces that we are in because that is where our values lie. What we should be doing is taking those spaces back right speak out more within those spaces right engage with people in those spaces don't abandon your value set because let's be honest it's not like we're going to continue down this path and we know for sure that you know for example conservative presidents are always going to be Zionists, and and liberal it could things can flip things change do you, you know what i mean and so we need Jews to follow their own value system. It's the beauty of Judaism and Jewish peoplehood and Zionism is that we're pluralistic. We have the right and the, the left and the center. And we argue and we debate. And I mean, that's the entire Talmud, right? It's just rabbis debating and arguing with each other. And that's, that's how it's supposed to be. And we Jews are supposed to engage in that as well. And so no, be in that conversation, but make sure to maintain it. I mean... You know, so many people thought Joe Biden was going to be this puppet of, you know, the far progressive anti-Israel left, which was the Elon Omars and the Rashida Thibes and the AOCs of our world. And yet here he is. He just made one of the most probably pro-Israel Zionist speeches and pro-Jewish speeches that I think we maybe have ever heard a president say and so he's risen to the occasion on multiple occasions where he could have been pulled to temper what he was saying by his far, far left flank. And he didn't. And we need to make sure that we support candidates like that in both parties. Right. Because inevitably, it's going back and forth. So we should always be supporting the most Zionist candidate in both camps because there's they're always going to be there. Right. You can say the progressives are anti-Zionist. And then you talk about Richie Torres. Who's not the opposite of? He's a Zionist. He's so pro-Israel. He's so pro-Jewish, and so it's not a matter of abandoning. It. It's a matter of embracing the people within your 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 movement, your cause, or your perspective, right? Your camp, and and bolstering those voices and using those voices to shove aside and marginalize the extremes within those within those within those groups. So you know, marginalizing the squad. Or if it's the conservatives, it's marginalizing people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and not allowing her to continue to make Holocaust comparisons that are despicable and saying that we have Jewish space lasers. You know, we have to see where People are promoting anti-Semitism, whether it's through anti-Zionism or just direct anti-Semitism. We have to see where that's coming from, because it's coming from both sides. And we have to stop acting like it's coming from one side or the other more aggressively. No, one side's just more blatant about it. And the other side is a little bit more, you know, sneaky about it. And that's very dangerous, but both are dangerous and both are feeding the animal that is anti-Semitism. And so abandon the space, embrace the space that you're in and work within that space to try to bolster the voices that are real and good and Zionist and marginalized marginalize
0: those that are not got it that is helpful one last question and then i will let you go this has been awesome by the way thank you so much and one last question and then maybe you can just share with us how people could learn more right now i see i'm loving it i'm sure you're loving it we're hearing bb and we're here and we're seeing on 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 the internet we're seeing even selfie videos of israeli soldiers that are being very very macho and we love it because we are feeling we want revenge and so we like big talk but I wonder on the world stage, people that are one second is Israel the aggressor, da, 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 and then you have Israeli soldiers that are being like Hamas, we're going to f you up, right? I'm just wondering, like, what, how it, is is this content that should be shareable or should we maybe lay low on the macho talk?
1: People have to understand it's it's not even macho it's these guys are pumping themselves up for war. And I just want to make that very clear. Your your question is so valid and I'm going to get to it. I just want to make everyone clear what we're seeing. We are seeing men prepare themselves to go to war, to go into a war where they know that they might face suicide bombers running at them, blowing themselves up. Like we are not dealing with conventional warfare. We We are dealing with warfare that these guys hopefully have never, will definitely have never seen and hopefully will never have to see again. And so- it's not a matter of macho. It's really a matter of pumping themselves up to try to get themselves into a mindset where they are not afraid and where they can fight this fight and fight it well. And it's it's chizuk. It's chizuk for all of us, right? It's things that we as a Jewish people desperately need to see in moments like this to feel more comfortable with what is happening to us, right? Is that something I necessarily need to share with the world for them to use against me? No. Do I care? Less, to be honest with you, um, I do also don't. I don't think that people are monitoring. You know, most Jewish groups on Instagram when we share this stuff. I think maybe I'm not sharing that stuff. You know, on my stories, I'm getting chizuk from it, and it's being shared in a lot of private WhatsApp groups. And I think that's maybe a very appropriate place for those things to stay. Uh, well, Shari, so that's understand- actually a really
0: good point. I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I meant to ask that earlier. Please. When we share things and and we're like oh but we're sharing all this stuff doesn't the world see it my question is does the world see it are we affecting anyone by the things that we share
1: it's affecting people it's just a matter of it's it's a matter of the reverberation outward so you have to you have to make sure that you're getting it into places where the network is beyond just the jewish people right yeah. but these, i mean i've been talking to people online and i'm always kind of like how are these people justifying this and then i'm like maybe Haven't seen the photos. Now, unfortunately, the few times that I did this and I sent them horrible, graphic, gruesome photos, the response was, these are fake. Hmm. So that was helpful. And that's really the, look- I want people to remember something. This is something we teach at Stanford with us all the time. It's called the 595. Okay, remember, this is the full audience of the world. 5% of people, they're Zionists. They're on our side right now. We're united. We're not arguing with that camp. We are presenting a united front out to the world. We have a right to do this. This is what happened to us. That's not our audience right now at all. The only That's my audience right now, right? Charlotte, because I need that 5% to be as strong and as capable as they possibly can to go out and spread that message. 5% Zionists. Then you get the 5% or anti-Zionists. When somebody says this, this means that they will never believe that Israel has a right to exist. This doesn't criticize Bibi or disagree with the Israeli government policies or the occupation. No, this is somebody who says Israel doesn't have a right to exist. And right now I'm putting in this category every single one of those people who was at those rallies in New York who essentially were saying, who were celebrating the death of Jews. And let's remember that those rallies, many of them happened before we had even responded in Gaza. So they were basically just celebrating the murder of Jews. So... In this, in, this, in this environment the chances of you breaking through to somebody like that well if they're in that category that means they're not they're not influenceable they're done too far gone haters not worth your time or your effort and man it's been painful so i would just recommend to just avoid it and then you've got the 90 percent who sit in the middle and i want you to try to remind yourself always that the 90 percent are the ones who are quiet And they don't say a lot. And sometimes they're scared to speak up. And they're scared to speak up even more when it comes to our conflict because the anti-Israel side makes them scared. They say something and they get attacked from every angle. And then it just shuts them up. So I want you to remember that there's a lot of people out there who might actually be on our side. And they're just really, really afraid to speak up. Or they just really don't feel like they know enough. But they are seeing these images and they're so confused by there would be any human being out there who could defend what Hamas just did. And those are the people that you can engage with. And so when you say, is sharing things helpful, if it's reaching those people, then of course it's helpful. And I want you to also know, if you feel like it's not, if you feel like you don't have that network, then what you can do as a Jewish person is you can go onto platforms like Stand With Us and other people who are sharing good content, and you can go into the comments and you can like the good comments and you can respond to comments and you can continue. And I know that sounds crazy, but that actually really aids in the algorithm. And so you got it. You can boost other posts by doing stuff like that, liking them, liking comments. Comments, pushing pro Israel comments, Zionist comments up to the top, pushing anti Israel comments down to the bottom. Those are the little things that I know they might sound minor, but they're not that everyone can do. So, yes, share it. And then share it when you're talking to people. Wear it on your sleeve. Be willing to have this conversation. This is going to go on for a little while. People are going to be at work. They're going to be wondering, should I be discussing this? And the answer is, yes, you should. Somebody asks you, how are you? You say, tough times. Don't just say, yeah, I'm fine, tough times, and then explain why times are tough and explain what happened and keep reminding people why this all started, that we didn't just decide one day to go and bomb Gaza or go and kill Hamas, that they brutalized us and know the stories, and I know how painful they are to listen to, but know the stories and know the names and try to take one, everybody listening, grab one story of one person who was killed or one person who was taken hostage. Know their story, know their name and their age and the details of how they were taken or how they were murdered and share it with people because they are going to forget So take the time to learn one story. And if you could learn more than one story, learn more than one story and keep telling that story. That's what we can do. And it's not just online. This is a battle of every single mind. And so remember that that 90% is influenceable, but they are also being influenced by the anti-Zionist side right now, by people who are pro-Hamas, essentially. And then people who veil themselves as pro-Palestinian when clearly they're not pro-Palestinian, they're pro-terror and pro-Hamas. So just remember, The 90%.
0: Charlotte, should we be expecting that like Taylor Swift and LeBron James and Justin Bieber and all of the, do we want them weighing in? Or is this just like, do we want a sacred space where we don't want our celebrities? We just, we want them to be just, people and not get involved not get their voice involved like what should be our attitude towards that because i see people are very insulted like why didn't taylor swift say anything and then i'm just like i Who's don't you? like when they get involved in these stuff because they don't really know anything
1: no offense like Taylor when they Swift, go, if you're listening <laughs> sorry taylor swift um it's a cool i don't expect taylor swift or anybody else to be experts on the israeli palestinian conflict but here's the thing shalma you do not have to be an expert on anything to know that murdering 40 babies is wrong. And that's, I don't need you to chime in and explain the entire history of the conflict. But if we cannot collectively condemn what Hamas did, if Taylor Swift can't bring it, you know, can't deal with haters, haters who call her out for condemning an organization that just murdered babies. Like, I don't, I don't, This is not fake news. This is not something that we've just made up. CNN gathered some of the most horrific photos and videos and compiled them together to tell you how the massacre at the music festival played out. This is not Israeli media. So... Yes, in a normal situation, I do need Ben Hadid. I need a supermodel chiming in on a conflict that I've been studying for 18 years of my life and still feel like I barely have scratched the surface. I don't need a random Joe Schmo chiming in on what the future of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict should be. But when the worst massacre against Jews in one day since the Holocaust happens, yeah, I do expect an outcry from the world. I expected it the same way that when France experienced the terrors at the Bataclan Theater that night in November, the way that the world came out for them. And it wasn't just, you know, governments lighting up buildings, which we really appreciate happened, but it's people. It's people changing their profile pictures, saying, I'm I'm Sam with France and or, you know what the, the you know, name the place. It's it's being able to call this terror instead of referring to Hamas as militants. With all due respect what militant looks at a, a bomb shelter where a bunch of people have huddled in this bomb shelter to protect themselves what what militant looks at that and sees that as a target where they then throw a grenade inside which there's graphic images of this of this of people being crowded in and then all of a sudden you see another video of them after a grenade went off inside so if taylor swift can't you know muster up a goddamn 260 character friggin' tweet or X or whatever the hell you call it nowadays. Yeah, I'm annoyed. I'm annoyed because it makes, look, the 90% is crucial. The 5% would be the perpetrators. The 5% were the people going around killing Jews. The 90% were the people who sat back and watched. And then there was a tiny portion of that 90% that we had pulled in to our 5%. Who said, "You know what? I'm going to risk my life to protect Jews." That 90% needs to be woken up because they have to realize that silence is complicity. Is 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 complicity. I can't say that word, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> it silence is 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 approval. Silence is saying to Hamas and all those other people who were celebrating that you don't care and that they can get away with this. It Kristalna. It was the same thing, right? A Jew shoots a guy in France, and it was all planned by Hitler. It was all planned. A Jew shoots a guy in France. They use it as an excuse. They already had a day of rage. That's what they were going to call it. And then it picked up in Germany, and we got Kristallnacht. And afterward, it was blamed on the Jews. Same exact thing that's happening now. The similarities are eerie. So yeah, I don't expect celebrities to chime in on the nuances and complexities of the conflict, but when Jews are massacred at the proportion that we just saw, I expect a little sympathy. I expect mass condemnation, and it shouldn't be hard. And the fact that anyone thinks that it's hard and anyone has to say, "Well, it's really complicated," so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take a back seat. When you murder forty babies and kidnapped two hundred people, Holocaust survivors, children, women, who Hamas. Prisoners have stated are they're going to be raped. Like, I'm sorry, but that is not hard to condemn. So, yeah, I want Taylor Swift chiming in. I want all of the million people, the, you know, possibly a billion people who follow her. Yes, I want them to know that a massacre against Jews in the 21st century is not going to be stood for, but it is being stood for. And now we know who are the perpetrators, who are the bystanders, and how many people we need to bring over to our side to make them realize that right now they're bystanders but they don't have to be. They could stand alongside us and they could be allies to the Jewish people and fall on the right side of history.
0: Wow, Charlotte, fantastic. You are you did such a wonderful job explaining everything. And it's really good you talk fast because you packed a lot into this hour.
1: That's what I do in my lectures. But I, can I, I don't know if you're wrapping up or if you had another question, but I'd love some final words.
0: Yeah, yeah, please, please. So take us home and share with us anything else that we might've missed. And also just tell people where you would like them to go next after this podcast.
1: So where you should go, standwithus.com slash situation room, get your content there. Uh, go to standwithus.com slash learn where we have booklets, brochures, fact sheets, get yourself educated. All right. And I know now you can't like read a bunch of books. So go read our booklets. They're there. We've taken all of the complicated stuff. We've broken it down in a very simple way for you to be able to learn. We have videos. There's so much content out there that will make it easy for you to try to get up to date on what's happening. Okay. So just keep educating yourself, right? Read those booklets, And go to Situation Room and start, and you can share things from there. So that's number one. Uh, Number two, everyone can keep donating. I want to just send a message about donating. Be very careful who you're donating to. Double, triple check. Uh, I just heard about an organization in Israel that was trying trying to defraud an organization from their money that that people had donated. So just really be careful about who you're donating to. Make sure it's getting to the right place. Uh, Keep sharing information. Keep sharing stories. Super, super important. And we're grateful here in Israel. We're grateful for the sh- the way the Jews around the world have stepped up to show their support. You know, we're fighting on one front line and y'all are on a different front line. And so we're all gonna, we're all gonna help each other out in this fight. And the last thing that I wanna say is that I want everyone to remember something. This is dark times, the darkest times I think, no, I don't think I know in my lifetime for Jewish people. And that could feel very hard and overwhelming. And it almost feels like you're in a dark tunnel and there's just no end in sight. And I want everyone to remember, and it's okay as you go through the dark tunnel to grieve and to mourn and keep crying because you have to let this out and don't let the anger consume you and don't let us become like our enemies and lose our humanity in the process of all of this. But I do want you to remember that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I want you to remember that in every generation, this has happened to Jewish people. Right? But that ends with, We will get through this. And hopefully this will be the darkest time of our lifetimes. And we will never see a dark time like this again. And I know that Israel right now is going to try to ensure that that doesn't happen, at least from this enemy. But I want you to remember that we always came out on top. And many have tried to destroy us and many have failed and we have outlived every single one of them. So walk tall, wear your Jewish star and your kippa with pride and don't apologize. Don't apologize to anyone for showing them that Jews deserve to be defended in this world. And that's what we're doing right now. We're showing the world how to properly defend Jews. And if you're not going to do it, we're going to do it. So know there's a light at the end of this tunnel. And we will come out stronger. We will come out more united. We will come out better on the other side of this. But it's going to be a long journey. So just try to keep that in mind throughout this long, arduous journey. But we'll get to the other side. And we will be better when we do.
0: Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you so much for your time. This was fantastic. I appreciate it. And just brachos and blessings to you to keep fighting your fight, our fight, the fight of the Jewish people, the fight of Eretz Yisrael. And Hashem should bless you with continued success and that your voice should be should continue to be heard. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to Rabbi shlomo.com for more great content and resources, and to connect directly with me.